The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Good morning, Amaze. How are you today? Not good. Okay. All right. Wonderful. This is going to be a joy. Here we go. Um, it's exciting today. We get to start a new series today in the book of Titus. So I've greatly enjoyed the last 10 weeks as we've been journeying through Pentateuch, and today we're starting Titus. And I have a really difficult task today, um, because today uh, I'm tasked with introing the book of Titus for us, preaching the first 10 verses of Titus for us, and ordaining and installing Samuel Parkinson as an elder of Emmaus Church, all within the next 45 minutes, or hour and a half. We'll see what happens. So we got a difficult task before us with that. In starting this book, just give me grace, because there's going to be some things that we have to skip over this morning in the introduction culturally, the introduction with the background and the context of where we're going that will be unveiled and revealed as we journey throughout the book. Right, we'll come back to the context and back to the, the island of Crete and back to the, the person Titus over and over again throughout the next um, six weeks as we journey through this short Small letter from Paul to Titus. But today we have to do a rather quick overview as we get into this passage for the sake of time. There's a question that we're asked often and that we ask ourselves often as pastors, and that is this. What is a successful church or what is a winning church or what is a healthy church? I, the term successful or winning are, are terrifying terms. Like, what does that even mean? But, but you can try to get to, okay, well, the goal is health. But still, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it mean to succeed at what we are doing in being the church? It appears that that question might be easier if you speak of it in terms of sports, such as today in the Masters, someone will win, right? The person who wins will have the lowest amount of hits, strikes, shots, whatever you call those. I'm not a golf fan. I play it. I don't watch it. It's nap time when you watch it. But the lowest strokes, shots, will win the Masters. It's the same in baseball, but not the lowest, but the highest, the amount of runs. It's easy to know who wins. But even within the idea of sports, it's not necessarily who wins that tells you if it was healthy or successful, is it? You can lose and still be a healthy team. You can lose and still have a successful season. Or or perhaps you don't care about sports, and so let's just translate it to healthy living. Right? For you, perhaps you would be considered obese if you weighed 250 pounds. For me, 250 pounds is a really healthy place to be because my lean body mass is 234. So 250 is wonderful. And for some of you, you'd be like dying tomorrow if you were 250. The question of what is healthy doesn't even translate necessarily in particulars across health. Each person holds and carries healthiness in a different way slightly. Yet there are principles that remain the same. There are principles to what it looks like to live healthy, and there are principles to what it looks like to be a successful team or have a successful game and such. There's principles that remain the same across every team, across every person, and in every life. And it's the same goes for the church. 
The particulars of what it means to be a healthy, a healthy church may change from church to church and culture to culture. But the principles remain the same. And throughout the book of Titus, we're going to see three principles or three requirements for being a healthy church. For those of you who are fans of nine marks, we're not going with nine. We're going with three today. Right? Three, three characteristics, three requirements, three principles of a healthy church. Here's what they are. Let me just give you the sneak peek throughout the rest of the series. First, healthy churches have right pastors. We're going to see this today in chapters 1, verses 5 through 16. Secondly, healthy churches have right doctrine. We're going to see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And third, healthy churches have right practice. We're going to see this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So healthy churches have right pastors, right doctrine, and right practice. I hope that that gets driven into you throughout this series because it's my desire that every sermon, those three phrases are mentioned to you. Right pastors, right doctrine, right practice. You could substitute the word right for godly. Godly pastors, godly doctrine, godly practice. That still leaves us with a question, what does that look like? What does it look like to have right pastors? What does it look like to have right doctrine? And what does it look like to have right practice? Titus is going to lay for us the foundation upon which we can build a healthy church here. Let's give the background to the book. A little bit of information about what we're looking at here. Titus is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a man by the name of Titus. It's a great guess. Right? The Apostle Paul's writing to a man named Titus. We don't know a lot about Titus. What we do know about Titus is that he was a Greek who became a follower of Jesus through the ministry of Paul. And he began to be Paul's disciple, to follow Paul around and learn from Paul and, and do ministry with Paul. Paul and Titus went to Jerusalem together to settle a theological dispute, seeking reconciliation and unity in the church. Titus witnessed the way that Paul handled that situation. In return, Paul immediately sends Titus to Corinth. Because in Corinth, there's another dispute. And Paul says, you've seen me do this. You've seen how I handle this. Now I want you to go handle this in Corinth. And so Titus goes to Corinth. And he rightfully, successfully, got in a godly, godly way, handles this dispute in Corinth. Then Paul and Titus connect back together and they go to this island of Crete. There they plant a church in Crete and Paul leaves and leaves Titus there. Now Paul writes back to Titus to give him instruction about Titus and this church. Titus and this church. What do we know about the people of Crete? Well, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quotes one of their own poets who says that they are liars, that they are evil beasts, and they are gluttons. We know that much. The Cretans are known for, this is their resume, right? They're known to be, to be gluttons, to be evil beasts, and to be liars. People ask me often, like, what are the idols of your community? Uh, what are the, like, what, what's the heart condition of your people? Like, what are the sins that they wrestle with? And Man, this is not the resume that I pour out for them. This is pretty harsh. I don't speak of you this harshly. 
Neither does Paul, by the way. He quotes a Cretan. Right? I love how Paul drives home the point without actually saying it himself. Right? He goes, you said it yourself. You're liars. You're evil beasts. You're not even humane. And you're gluttons. You spend your life on what pleases you. We know this about the Cretans. They were mercenary soldiers. That's how they made their living. Fighting wars that were not their wars to fight. To plunder people who were weaker than them. And we know that the Cretans worshipped a god by the name of Zeus. Who we will see more about when we get to chapter 2. To sum it up, Zeus is anything but a moral, righteous god. And he's their poster child of morality. To sum it up, they were immoral and they loved their immorality. And Titus has been left with this young church plant on this island of Crete. This young church plant of people who have become followers of Jesus, but have been surrounded and immersed in a life and a culture of loving their immorality. And so Paul writes to him. And we're going to see here in this letter that what Paul says is that Paul has written to him so that he might put into order this church. He might put into order this church. It's a word we get orthodontics from. That he might make straight what is crooked. He might make healthy what is not healthy. To put into order. So let's just start with the letter, shall we? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we'll read it, then we'll explain it, and then we'll move on to 5 through 9. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul, in his introduction, which I was tempted to just skip over and get to the meat of today's sermon, if you will, which is the qualifications of a right pastor, where today we are ordaining Sam as a pastor. But there's too much richness in this introduction to pass over it. Paul begins and Paul lies out for us his identity. And he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Depending on what translation you have, it might say a slave of God or a bond servant of God. That word slave is important because in chapter 2, we will see that come back out. In chapter 2, he refers to those who are slaves being obedient to their masters. And it's important to remember that he calls himself a slave here. He is placing himself in a position of, of master, servant, owner, owned. Um, this position of servitude towards one who is greater than him being God. And so he says, I'm a slave, a servant of God's, and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is important for us to see how he identifies himself because it's also how we should identify ourselves. Now, you and I are different than Paul. We can't say an apostle of Christ. Right? You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. I'm a pastor. You're a church member. We're, we're not apostles. But this identity does translate to us in the fact that we are all servants of God and we're all messengers for Christ. The scriptures would call us an ambassador. 
Right, that we are messengers for, we are servants to God and messengers for Christ. And today, this particularly, specifically applies to Sam. That the calling you've been called to as all members is to be a servant of God's. And also, though, to be a messenger of Christ. And for Sam, even with more weightiness and more responsibility, as God has called him to be a shepherd of the church. So Paul gives his identity here of a servant and a messenger. And he gives a reason why. Look at it. I I love the complexity of his reason. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. So so let's just start with this in hope of eternal life. There's a motivation, there's a goal, there's, there's a foundation upon which this is built, and that's hope of this eternal life that he's referencing. Later on in chapter 2, he's going to refer to this as the hope of the glory of God and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? That he will return and his glory will be present and we will see him face to face. Here he refers to it as this eternal life, this hope of that. This is our foundation, We're going to spend more time on that in chapter 2 because it is significant for us. And we even sing songs about it today. That our hope is in the return of Christ. Our hope is in the day that we see him and know him. That is our foundation. Our foundation is not in a hope that we will be recognized or be good or be right. But our hope, our foundation is in Jesus and his return. Which only comes when we honestly, truly, deeply believe Jesus has risen and will return. Right? So, so this is where our hope is at. This is the foundation. And upon this foundation then builds out this reason for Paul being a servant and an apostle. Being a, a servant and a messenger. And his reason for writing this letter. And he says this threefold. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth. Which accords to godliness? For the faith of the knowledge, or excuse, for, the, for the faith of the elect and for the knowledge of truth, which accords to godliness. Paul's reason to be a servant of God and a messenger, an apostle of Christ, and his reason for writing this letter to Titus is so that the elect, those who have put their hope and faith in Christ, might have their faith built up might grow in a knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. Right faith and right knowledge always leads to right practice. If you look at your life and your life is a wreck of godliness, you're not gracious, you're not kind, you're not generous, you're not loving, There's no love for Jesus. There's no love for others. There's no patience. Your life is void of what the scriptures call the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. Continue on. If your life does not have these ideas, these characteristics that the scriptures clearly call godliness, and we're going to see a whole host of these things later in this book, then there's something broken. There's something greatly broken. Either you're not grasping right knowledge of who God is, or you're not walking in right faith of who he is, or you might not know him at all. Because right faith and right knowledge always leads 
to right practice. By the way, this is why theology matters to us at Emmaus. This is why doctrine matters to us, because right doctrine should always lead to right practice. It matters what we believe about God, and it matters how we have faith in God, because it matters how we live for God. It greatly matters. If you're someone who loves to taunt and and flaunt, flaunt your freedoms and to walk with your freedoms out for everyone to see and to brag on how you can live a life of sin because of the grace of God, this is going to be a miserable book for you. I would skip the next five weeks, except for next week, it's Easter, come. <laughs> then we come back to Titus, start, start skipping then, because it's going to be miserable, because he's going to call us to holy, godly, right living. And then notice what he says about God. Verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. God who never lies. Don't miss this short, simple phrase. The context of whom he writes to gives much weightiness to this. Because you remember how he classifies the people of Crete? Liars. And if you know about their god, Zeus, you'll understand that he was a liar as well. Who spent his time deceiving married women so that he could entice them to bed. So it is a people who are known to be liars, who worship a god who is praised for his deceit. And Paul goes, which god who doesn't lie? You might lie, your god might lie but the God does not lie. He is full of truth and full of honesty, and there is no lie that drips from his mouth. Everything he says will come true. Everything he promises will be done. We just spent the last 10 weeks talking about this through the Pentateuch. We looked at God's grandeur to establish his people and his grace to preserve his people and looked at all of that through the lens of covenant or promise. That the promises God makes, the covenants he makes, he keeps despite our inability to keep them, despite our unfaithfulness to them. He's a promise-keeping God. And so Paul goes, man, God has promised to return. That's our hope. Our hope is in a God who has promised to return. We know it will happen. Therefore, let us have right doctrine. Let us have right faith. And let us have right practice. Paul's hopes throughout this letter. And then in verse four, he says to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And so Titus in common faith, we have a common faith with, with him. Titus is his child in the faith. He has shared the gospel. Titus has believed. He's been discipling him. They have a same faith, a common faith. They believe the same Right? At Emmaus, our common faith is in the gospel. We have differences of belief on some issues across this room. But when it comes down to the core of what Christianity is, that being the gospel, that meaning that you and I are sinners, that Christ is God and came from heaven to enter earth, born as a baby, live among man as a man, perfect without sin. 
then offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we would not have to have God's wrath poured out upon us. Rather, he took God's wrath, poured out upon him, and then gave us the God's kindness that was due him. Was then buried, rose again on the third day, and today lives at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession on behalf of your sin and my sin. Every time we fail, pointing back to his death and crucifixion, saying, look at my sacrifice, look at my sacrifice, not at their sin. Literally praying us into heaven. That is our common faith at Emmaus. That is what we hold to. That's what we believe in. That's what we boil everything down to. If you're here today and you go, that doesn't sound anything like what my common faith is. We would love to talk to you about Jesus. Because what we just quickly walk through is the gospel. And the scripture says that is what you must believe and that is what you must have faith in to be right with God. So we would love to talk to you about that. We plead with you to believe that. Now, verse 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might be able to put what remains into order. Right? What remains? This fledgling church plant. Take what remains, this, this group of people, this fledgling church plant, this, this young church with these young believers, and put them into order. Bring health to it. Bring straightness to it. Bring order to this. And the first step of doing that is to have right pastors. The first step of doing that is to have godly pastors. To have godly pastors. So, so here the church, don't check out at this point. Because it is incredibly important for you as a church to know what it means to have a godly pastor. Because the day that your pastors cease to be godly pastors is the day we should cease to be your pastors. It is also important because just like a few weeks ago when we as a church voted on Sam to be a pastor of our church, it is incredibly important that you as members know what it means to have a godly pastor because that's what you're voting for. Not whether or not you like the person's personality. Not whether or not they're nice to you. Not whether or not you think that they are the best fit. Are they godly, right pastors, meaning biblical qualifications? It's important for us. And Sam, listen. Because this is important for you. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Notice plural, right? I'm not going to spend time there. Plurality, multiple elders, not one pastor. Multiple pastors leading the church in every town as I directed you. 
If anyone is above reproach, so here are the qualifications. Here's what it looks like to be a right pastor, a godly pastor. If anyone is above reproach, which simply means unable to be called out. Now, let me clarify. What we don't mean is you can't call out your pastors on sin. That's not what that means. It means that if you tried to call them out on a lifestyle of sin, you couldn't find any. Does that make sense? We are members like you are who are held to a covenant like you are. And if there's sin in our lives, it should be called out in our lives like it is in yours. But a pastor is someone who should live a life in such a way that when you look at their life, there is no predominant sin. There is no lifestyle of sin. There is no pattern of sin that you can look at and go, this man is broken to pieces with sin. It does not say that he is perfect. Praise God. It doesn't say he won't sin. It's referring to this idea of being above reproach. He is not in habitual lifestyle sin, living there unrepentantly. So he is above reproach. Your pastors have walked with Sam now for over two years. We have seen Sam walk in sin and out of sin. Confession and repentance. It is a joy of my heart to be able to say that Sam is a man who is above reproach. After two, over two years, almost two and a half years of walking with him, I have no doubt of that. It goes on, it says, the husband of one wife. Sam, do you have one wife? Good, just one. It's good. Right, this is not saying he has to have a wife. A pastor can be single. But he has to have one wife if he has one. And furthermore, he has to be a man who has one wife in his heart. His heart is for his wife. His love is for his wife. So he can't just officially have one wife and some mistresses over here. He can't officially have one wife and mistresses in his pocket. He has to have one wife and be committed to her. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Sam got off easy on this one because his son's one and a half. But seriously, what does this mean? This is one that terrifies me the most. Does this literally mean that if my son grows up not to be a follower of Christ, I must step down from my church as pastor? Now, let me give a qualifier on that. Me stepping down as pastor would be the least of my concerns if my son was not a pastor, not a follower of Christ. My heart would be grieved for far greater reasons than losing my job, my position as pastor. But is that what that means? Well, if you take this in light of Timothy, and in the Timothy, in another pastoral epistle, Paul writes to Timothy on qualifications as well, and he deals with the household and the family as well. Paul does not look at it in Timothy as the believer, as the child must be a believer, but rather puts the emphasis on the way in which Sam, or the pastor, manages his household the way in which he's a father, the way in which he loves his wife and raises his children. Sam has no ultimate control over whether his child is a follower of Christ. Just as your pastors have no ultimate control of whether you are. Sam cannot dictate his child's faith in Christ, just as we as pastors cannot dictate your faith in Christ. Rather, the emphasis seems to be on the way of which Sam manages and handles his household. That his children 
are not driven to be children who live lives of debauchery and insubordination. Or as Timothy would say, that they are being submissive, that they honor and respect and love their father. That in the midst of Sam shepherding a church, he does not forget the heart of his children. And he shepherds his children first and foremost. And he loves them and he nurtures them and he teaches them of the ways of God. He teaches them of the gospel. And thus his children respect him and love him and follow him. Verse 7. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent. Though if Sam was violent, he's a black belt. He would win. (laughs) He must not be greedy for gain. By the way, anyone who would do a residency as intense as ours for two years without being paid. Upon completion of that, step into being a worship leader full-time for free. And then at the end of that, agree to become a pastor of a church for free is not exhibiting a life that is greedy. Verse 8, he must be hospitable. He must be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word so that you, we as a church, or so that you, Sam, are able to give instruction to us, the church, in sound doctrine, and also be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. For two and a half years, Sam has been tested on these things, watched on these things, questioned on these things. We've looked at the way that he loves his wife and the way that he confesses sin and the way that he handles conflict situations at church and the way that he handles family um, strife and the way that he handles work tension and the way that he lives his life. We have watched it and we have tested it. And we believe that Sam is a man of godly character both at home and on the street. And then we have tested his doctrine, a robust theological test as Sam spent much time writing on and answering questions of what his doctrine looks like, what he believes. And we have found Sam to have sound theology and doctrine. He believes rightly. And here at Emmaus, we have seen Sam and heard Sam teach us sound doctrine. Whether that's in the times that he has stood in this pulpit and preached, whether that's in membership class talking about the Trinity, whether that is in his times of leading us in worship and confession, reminding us weekly that that our pardon is in the Lord through Christ's blood. Sam has taught us sound doctrine. And then Sam has also rebuked those who have bad doctrine, who refuse to accept sound doctrine. He's done so with gentleness, with kindness. He's done so with grace but he's done so with a firm hand rested upon the truth of God's word, calling for repentance and calling for belief in what is sound doctrine for the joy of the person and the fame of Christ. So after two and a half years, Sam, it's no no doubt to Ronnie and I that you're a man who meets the qualifications of a pastor. And after a 96% vote a few weeks ago, it's clear that this church has also seen you as a man who meets the qualifications of a pastor.
In summary, you're a godly husband and father, a godly man of character, and a man of sound doctrine. Now let me speak to two things very briefly that are not in our text. The first is this. We do not see an age requirement in this text, nor anywhere in Scripture for a pastor. Say, Josh, why do you need to bring that up? Because Sam is 26 years old, which at our church makes him middle age. (laughs) But still young. There is nowhere within Scripture that age is a qualifier of a pastor. In fact, we know that Timothy became an elder around his mid-20s. And Paul wrote to him, let no one look down upon you for your youthfulness. And so, Sam, let me encourage you in this. There are days you'll wake up and your youthfulness will cause doubt in you. Don't let that sink in. Fight that. For the Lord never gave age as a qualifier. He gave character and doctrine as qualifiers. And you meet those. You are a man who is qualified to pastor, and you're qualified to pastor here. There has never been a first-time elder who was experienced in pastoring. There's no qualification with Scripture that a pastor must have certain life experiences so that they can relate to the needs of the people. And there's no qualification within Scripture that a pastor be of a certain age to teach sound doctrine or correct poor doctrine. In fact, later on in this book, in this very book we're going through, he will call for for Titus to teach the older men and for the older men to submit to his teaching. Age is not a precursor to instruction or submission. Godly character Sound doctrine are. We do not put qualifications on elders that scripture does not put on elders. Second point I want to make. We do not see any requirements for the pastor's wife. We do not see any requirements in scripture for the pastor's wife. Shannon, the title pastor's wife doesn't even exist in scripture. It never addresses you. It addresses you as wife. You happen to be now the wife of a pastor. But scripture calls you to be a wife. To be a wife. Scripture gives clear guidelines for godly wives. They are to respect their husbands. They are to submit to their husbands. They are to pray for their husbands. They are to exhort their husbands. But a pastor's wife church is simply a member of the church as all of us are members of the church. Pastor's wives are to respect their husbands as any wife is to respect her husband. And they're to serve the church as any member is to serve the church. And they're to love Jesus as any member is to love Jesus. The qualifications for a pastor's wife are simply this, be a wife who's married to a pastor. We do not put expectations on pastor's wives that scripture does not put there. If anything, church, This is a call to us to have more expectation upon ourselves for responsibility to Shannon and the pastor's wives. We should pray for Shannon because Sam is going to come home home to her after bearing your sins, after hearing your confessions, after walking through your struggles, and he will collapse in her arms, bury his head in her chest, and at times weep tears of sorrow on your behalf. And it is her job, her responsibility then, to be a wife to him, to point him to Jesus, to exhort him to Jesus, to edify him to Jesus, 
to remind him that he's not the Savior, but Jesus is. To remind him that this church is not lost for hope because Jesus is risen. We must pray for her because she also will see his sins first and foremost above all of us. And she in those moments in truth and grace must point him to confession and repentance and trust in the gospel. She, along with Tish and Kristen, desperately need your prayers, church. They serve you in a unique way. And that unique way is simply this. They love your pastors in a way no one else does. So pray for them as they carry your burdens through our weightiness every day. Now, let me give a challenge to Emmaus beyond what I just gave to Emmaus. Emmaus, I ask you to be a people committed to being a healthy church. Be a people committed to being a healthy church. Faith plus knowledge equals godly living. We're going to play this out in this series. Challenging you throughout this series to be a people committed to being a healthy church. Secondly, be a people committed to praying for your pastors, specifically today for Sam. Sam meets the qualifications of a pastor, but the enemy would love to change that. Today he meets the qualifications of a pastor, but the enemy would love to change that. So pray for him. Pray that Sam and our pastors would love Jesus, love the church, love their wives, and love their children. Pray that Sam and our pastors would be known for humility, holiness, and reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that Sam and our pastors would be strengthened in their faith and in their knowledge of the truth so that they may live in godliness and teach us as a church to live in godliness. Thirdly, submit to Sam's teaching of God's word. We must submit to the teaching of sound doctrine and align our lives with the truth of Scripture that Sam and our pastors teach us. If it has been tested with the Scriptures and it falls in line with the Scriptures, we must submit to it. So we challenge you, call on you, church, to submit to the teaching of your pastors when it aligns rightly with Scripture. And then a challenge for Sam. Sam, I challenge you to be a man of character at home, to love your wife, to love your child, soon-to-be children in your arms well, to love them first and foremost. Give grace and give affection. Give kindness and give patience. May your children never grow up and say, my dad was a good pastor, but a lousy father. And may your wife never say, my man was a faithful pastor, but an absent husband. Be a man of character at home. Secondly, be a man of character before others. Read this list of qualifications often. Confess, repent, and seek help in the ones you find yourself slipping in so that we might not fall out of qualification. And thirdly, be a man of sound doctrine. Know the scriptures and the God of the scriptures so that you can help us as the church know the scriptures and the God of the scriptures. Teach us faithfully and correct us when we do not believe rightly. It's my challenge to you, Sam. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.